0: Dialogues is the show where we discuss the big questions about life. Who are we? How do we live a good life? And what does it all mean anyway? This week we're joined by public health practitioner, comedian, and beekeeper Alan Coley. Can I pronounce that right? Collie.
1: Yeah. Look, I'll go with any name really it's <laughs> okay. this is fine. <laughs> Thanks. Coley.
0: Coley. And we'll be talking about bees and wondering what gives us humans purpose in life. So Alanta, thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, the show.
1: thank you for having me.
0: So so you're a beekeeper. I am. Yep. And and you live in a, a city.
1: I Melbourne. do, yeah, yeah. Bees are the best. Uh, what do I like about bees? Um they're amazing communicators, so there's I think science is only just starting to understand the means by which bees actually communicate to each other. So they've got very complex methods of communicating sources of nectar and pollen, teaching each other things. So as, a, as far as insects go, they've got incredibly complex, um, yeah, intelligence around communication. And I think there's some really interesting research being done at the moment trying to sort of uh, find out what's a bee's intelligence even if like and it's a weird idea to even be able to compare intelligence across species because it's a little bit of a two-dimensional idea really Mm. Um, what does intelligence even mean for an insect but I I love that Uh, I love the role they play in the sort of broader ecosystem um and you know they've got a little bit of a bad rap around you know the the whole stinging people thing but um when you get to know them (laughs) they they really only only sting if they uh, are defending the very hard worked for honey that they've (laughs) been gathering for many months so you know you can kind of relate to that really
2: we were talking before uh before you came in, uh, Joe and I about how bees do communicate, and I was telling Joe I saw this about how they dance yeah. to express, uh, give directions to other yeah. bees, and I was, I was like, um, maybe I could ask, uh, do bees dance for fun? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> do you know? <laughs> I don't know. They apparently there
1: was a study sort of looking at bees uh, and happiness and depression. Wow. And um, bees under more stressful situations do. Uh, express behaviours which scientists are interpreting as depression. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's <sad>. incredible. <laughs> what kind of
0: circumstances lead to the depression?
1: Uh like scarce food sources okay. or really difficult sort of environmental conditions, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. sort of, you know, things that reduce a bee's joy in life. So, you know, <laughs> maybe they do dance for fun. Just, just like a
0: heavy bee night out and it
1: can cause mass swarm-like <laughs> yeah. depressions. You have to be careful, though, if you were dancing for fun because you'd be giving all sorts of signals off to other bees. and you Confusing know. people. Yeah. And like, yeah. I
2: thought there was some really good pollen out here. Yeah, yeah. Like, nah. I flew seven kilometers.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, I was just stretching. <laughs> we went all that way <laughs> it was I'm so sorry <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's amazing
2: you were saying Joe about like how bees um, like if there's any relationship between how bees function socially and how humans function socially yeah so I guess, um, I guess that, yeah. that question
0: about whether bees dance for fun came from the the idea that bees seem to have very specific purposes in life. Mm, so mm. so their their places within the swarm and ro- what role they perform
2: yeah. for
0: that swarm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it kind of gave gave rise to the idea of, of whether or not they actually have free time or, or their own <laughs> interests. Um so, <laughs> you know, there, there are certain parallels that we can draw between bees and humans. Um, obviously, we're, we're more complex organisms.
2: <laughs> we like, um, to so, we, we yeah. like to think so. <laughs> we like to think
0: so. We think very highly of ourselves. Um, but of course, we, we have purposes as well, but perhaps they're slightly less defined than they are for the bee community.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, you're inter- entering some interesting uh, philosophical territory here. Um, it's sort of a lot of people talk about hives as and as the organism and bees as being just like almost like cells within that organism. Mm. Um, in that way that we have immune systems where individual cells will sacrifice them for the good of the whole Macroorganism. Wow, um, and bees will do the same. So, a, a, a sort of—I mean, I haven't read up too deeply in bee psychology, but the idea that um, one bee will will defend its will lose its life in order to defend the hive—and I guess you could probably draw some parallels there—and <laughs> <laughs> sure. definitely enough American war films to mm, suggest mm. as much. Yeah. Mm. Um, but it's interesting from an evolutionary perspective because humans have generally. I mean, they're sort of set up biologically to have a great amount of genetic diversity within Mm -hmm. um, uh, within the human species, whereas within a hive, there's a single mother, and that's the queen, and there'll be six or seven different male bees, drones, that have contributed to the genetic stock to make those bees, but essentially all the workers and all the drones inside a hive are brothers and sisters, wow. at least half brothers and sisters. Yeah. And the strength of that means that because they're so genetically similar, they have that capacity to understand each other, communicate and collaborate because they're very, very similar. Oh.
2: So bees um, are psychic, is that what you're
1: saying? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: but I there's less in I, I, yeah. I, was, I was doing some reading. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> Go on. Does that relate to the idea that there's less of the imperative for individual bees to, to really need to pass on their individual uh, DNA? It's yeah. because the, the DNA is more shared, so you can still mm. do your job in kind of surviving and passing your D, passing on your DNA without procreating yourself.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I guess your, in terms of passing on your DNA... Uh, it's about the survival of the hive because 80 to 90 percent of the hive are worker bees which are female but they're only female technically in the sense that um, if the qu- the queen is the only one laying eggs in the hive one mm. bee one out of 50,000 bees is the only one doing the egg laying and unless the if the queen if the queen dies, they go into emergency supersedure and some of the worker bees can start laying eggs, but because they've never been fertilized, the eggs are actually clones. So Whoa. they're just producing clone bees, which will keep the hive going, but it's an emergency situation. Wow. So you're not have so most bees aren't having sex, is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> the queen is I mean, that's, that's why there's less party dancing. So. Yeah, 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 less fermenting the honey, and getting meat out of it, having a good old
2: time. Like. <laughs> Sounds quite and dry. And a simpler kind of a life, yeah. though I feel. Like. Yeah, very, like, more aesthetic aesthetic structured. Yeah. Kind of. yeah, yeah,
1: just enjoy the gardens and the sun.
2: <laughs> so I don't want to. We don't want to be the whole thing about bees, but I do just want to ask: like, how did the how does the queen bee get um, replaced when? Yeah, she does die. like Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: well, it's a good question. So uh, if the queen is showing signs of slowing down and queens can live for a really long, like three to eight years, I've heard like I've read different accounts of how long the queen can live. Right. Um, if she starts uh, slowing down, the worker bees, and I have no idea what biological mechanism makes this happen, mm. they'll start producing new queens in the hive. And the way you produce a queen is by continuing to feed royal jelly to some of the larvae. So every larvae is fed royal jelly, which is this kind of rich, proteiny, hormony kind of um, food source that stimulates in a larvae development. If you keep feeding, I love it, that it turns into a queen. And, um,
2: oh, that's um, why people buy royal jelly like humans. And, yeah. Yeah. They're like, I'll become a queen. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's not a life you want, really. She's like <laughs> no, thousands of eggs every day. It's, yeah. Yeah, she's <laughs> serving
2: her hive. Yeah, that sounds... Pretty stressful. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, um, yeah, when, um, when the old queen's getting old or there's some issue with the hive, they'll make new queens and then there'll be a fight inside <sighs> the hive and the queens um, have a very long, a smooth stinger. And they'll actually go into battle with each other and they'll Why? either kill... One queen will kill the other. There might be five or six in one batch and they'll all just fight it out. So it's a bit sort of Hunger Gamesy, y Wow. Um, style, Game of Thrones. I haven't actually watched either of those. Com- so It's a terrible use of metaphor, <laughs> just hoping that that was accurate. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, or... They'll agree to disagree and one queen, the old queen, will leave with half the hives and that's what when you see a swarm. Wow. Uh, and then the new queen will be, reign over her new domain and be the queen.
0: Oh, so that's like a really pivotal... Like social moment that you're seeing when you see a swarm flying. Yeah. Like bad stuff has gone down recently. Yeah, it's been a coup. Bad bad or good.
1: Like the hive has got so full of of bees that it was time for some of them to go and so they'll make a new queen. So there's a few different things that can trigger a swarm. But a swarm is kind of how a hive gives birth and that's where you get your genetic diversity across different hives as opposed to within
2: a hive, if that makes sense.
0: Okay, and that's the whole thing about a hive being more like an organism than individual in bees. Yeah, the
2: exactly. Base. Yeah. Mm. Have you learned things from being a beekeeper that you can apply to your life, that Ooh. you know, your human social life? Like, oh uh, gosh. Um, well,
1: yes, you should work together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you achieve Collaborate. more. Collaborate, <laughs> yeah. As a group. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: if things get too busy and stressful, get out of it. Yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> only only be aggressive when you're in defence. Don't go into attack. Yes, um, mm-hmm. I can't say there's too many immediately directly applicable things. For example, when a wasp attacks a hive, the bees surround the wasp and create friction to the point that they'll actually cook the wasp alive. Um, haven't oh, found that a technique that I have <laughs> applied in my daily life. But, you know, there's still time, one day. You can pick and choose. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's not all or nothing.
1: I mean, they're very good planners. They, I mean, the whole honey thing is based, most most of the honeybees we have are European, and so the honey is all about making sure they've got enough food for the winter, so storing it up. So they plan ahead. Very sustainable <laughs> until
2: people come and harvest yeah. their uh, yeah honey yes mm. exactly
1: so um, most beekeepers are, I mean the whole art to beekeeping is harvesting just enough to make sure the bees don't swarm because that's very unpopular especially if you're living in a, in a neighbourhood um, uh, but not taking too much honey and putting the bees into stress so getting that balance mm. nice. Mm.
0: But obviously, beekeeping is only one aspect of your life, and you you seem to have lots and lots of different interests and yeah. pursue them um, in really interesting ways, which is you know one of the big reasons we wanted to talk to you. And on the topic of purpose and finding purpose in in your life as a human, I would I think we'd be really interested to know what your thoughts on that are, because you mm. do seem to have these different channels of, of interest yeah. in your life and, and not a lot of people do They'll, you know a lot of people have one job and that's that's everything for them. Mm. You've got a few things going on.
1: I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big question <laughs> really. Um, I think for me the two major things that inspire me or trigger my curiosity. I want I want to be useful I guess in some some capacity and um, got very I spent a lot of my 20s traveling in developing countries, and was just very, it took as many opportunities to uh, expose myself to cultures that were completely different to the way I lived um, uh, and had been brought up, and was very stimulated and inspired by that. Um, and I've always, I think I said it when I was 16, I've always just wanted a job that allows me to sleep at night, like just a sense that you're contributing. Came from a family of teachers and unionists and <laughs> people right. who always <clears throat> strongly believe that you know, you got an education in order to give something back to society and contribute, which I guess is a bit like a bee. (laughs) Um, But I've also grown up around musicians and artists and creative people and I think I've always been torn between two worlds of um, working in developing countries uh, has been incredibly stimulating and working on programs to prevent HIV and and improve uh, access to family planning and... um, Reduce malaria. Got malaria twice during that time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Single-handedly yeah. trying to let's get malaria yeah, yeah, out I'll of it. It. Yeah, <laughs> I'll have it. <laughs> it's really not how it works. <laughs> Martyrdom. <laughs> um, yeah, I think also being part uh, – living in Melbourne is just wonderful and being part of a creative community and being able to delve into – Uh, explore ideas and and, uh, spend a Monday uh, chatting with people about the meaning of life and and Mm. purpose and how you find that purpose is also Mm. um, really rich and rewarding so I think my my life is generally navigating between those two spaces, and mm. every now and then they they align, and you can do both simultaneously. And sometimes they take you to complete opposite ends of the world as well.
2: Mm. Yeah, you said you when you were talking about it, you were like, oh, I've been you know, there's been times I've been torn like between creative work and then work that helps others. I really relate to that as well. Yeah. I uh, play music and write, and also um, have worked in community services yeah, mostly. Okay. So and um, Joe and I were talking before this show about how um, at the moment, I'm looking for work, and I feel this pressure to to present myself as mm. someone for whom community services is my life and mm. all the work that I do. Mm. And mm. then when you're sort of in creative spaces, there's this thing like, can I make a living from this? Can I can mm. this be all that I do? Mm. And I've been recently thinking about how, does it need to be one thing or the other, and why is it that that there's this feeling that I have mm. that it should be? Yeah. Did, have you ever thought about that in yeah. balancing the the areas that you're interested in? Uh, yeah, I yeah. think
1: it's a very old old narrative as well. I think I, I don't. I think most humans are complicated enough to have multiple facets and multiple passions and outlets, yeah. and more than that. Your creative work makes you better in your community service work and your community service work gives you so much understanding and and engagement with society that feeds into your creative work. And for me, neither would ever... Enough um, mm. and I think both end up benefiting from the other as well. Yep. Um, and I, th- I think slowly when you are, yeah, there's a sort of sense when you walk into a job interview often you have to be like, every moment in my life was leading up to this interview. This is my sole passion, I will give you everything I have. It's a very feudal kind of like <laughs>
2: <laughs> I will serve you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> and I th- think we're seeing more and more employers who understand a multifaceted human who has a life out outside of nine to
2: five is going to
1: be more well-rounded and bring more to the table Mm. and have more perspective than someone who just lives and breathes for that one job.
2: Yeah, I hope so. (laughs) Yeah, I do feel like it seems to be getting more like that and it does help to be somewhere like Melbourne where a lot more people I meet are balancing out those kind of diverse interests that seem incompatible but as you say – are a lot more compatible than they seem
1: and you develop skills in both areas that end up contributing across um and vice versa it's everyone benefits i think
2: yeah
0: do you think there's one overriding purpose that that connects all of the various things that you do and the interests that you have for yourself or even for for everybody for every human being or, or rather just there's just a, a multitude of purposes and you kind of pick and choose whichever one takes your fancy. Yeah, it
1: depends how deep and how pur- purist you want to go on it. I think ultimately uh, there's no – like some people strive for fame or making a mark and I think there's very few people whose mark quote-unquote lasts more than a generation. You know, they might be famous within their lifetime or, or make an impact in their lifetime but within a generation – They've, they've disappeared. Also, there's no benefit to a dead person. <laughs> People yeah. in, in 100 years' time remember them or not. <laughs> I, I think ultimately, you know, whether you're uh, religious or spiritual or, or atheist, the ultimate goal maybe is to reduce pain uh, and increase joy in the time mm-hmm. that you're alive. And, and aiming for anything other than that is yeah. temporary at best, I mm. think. They're pretty
0: fundamental things. yeah. Um, Yeah, you you can't get much more fundamental than the feelings you're having in a certain moment or over a long period of time.
1: And you might be a nihilist, but if you drop drop a brick on your foot, pain is a very real (laughs) thing that's very hard to philosophise your way around. Um, I mean, some people try, but... uh...
2: (laughs) It's true. Um, And it's interesting you say, like you know, reduce pain and increase, like, enjoyment in life. And th- I think this is a f- interesting thing about um, – for people who work in creative fields, um, there can be a social understanding or implication that mm. they're very self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, for myself, I've thought about – Books that I've read, times I've been to comedy shows, or f- things I've watched films, or things that were um, affecting and moving for me—they yeah. significantly contribute to m- yeah. like purpose, meaningful purposeful, meaningful yeah. lives, and yeah. just um, provide something which yeah. is essential to kind of human having a, a good human life. Yeah. yeah. So you're still in service a lot of the time when you're uh, someone in that field. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean, most of us live in Melbourne because it's this cultural creative hub. Mm. And I mean, there's debates about how people live sustainable lives as creatives when they're contributing to that because we don't have an economic system that ne- necessarily mm. recompenses people for the amount of value that they produce back to the community that they're they're in. Um, that's a debate we could have for a good couple of hours Yeah, about how that all works. Yeah. Um. But yeah, and I guess that's another thing. How do you tangibly know who you're reaching and how you're, uh, what joy you're creating mm. through that? Um, but I think you
0: can only really know it implicitly from yeah. the experiences you've had enjoying other people's creative yeah. work. Yeah. Mm. And and I completely agree. That's a massive amount of the value I get in life is mm. just enjoying things that have been created by other people. Mm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> And we're social beings are uh, the only – I mean, I think for me the big thing in comedy is when you hear someone articulating an experience that you've had and they've put it into words when you didn't know – you'd never had that conscious ability before to, to articulate it. And that is a beautiful moment of empathy and togetherness and, yeah, so, so I think art is often doing that, connecting mm. people and, and making them realise they're not alone in this – this, um, this meat prison. <laughs> which we've yeah, into. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Uh,
0: well, talking of meat prisons.
1: <laughs> try, try and link this to. Um,
0: <laughs> so, so I think, you know, I completely, I think we're all, there's a consensus there about the value of, of creativity in life. Um, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the value of, of science in our lives. I, I think there's, there's a clear value in, in the many advances that science has made in, in how we live and mm. you know, longevity of life and health benefits mm. and the technology that surrounds us. But more, I was interested to hear your thoughts on the value of living a scientific life and, mm. and thinking scientifically and being aware of scientific facts and how that in might inform your day-to-day life, if yeah. at all.
1: Yeah. Oh, gosh, it's huge. Science is such a – it's this word we bandy around as if it's got a single – Identification—it's one of those things like, like scientists discovered blah. And you're like, who, who, what did they, ha- how, where were they? What, what was the process they use? Um, but we're very happy to sort of—I don't think any other fields would get away with that level mm. of anonymity or that assumed kind of objectivity slash. That's the—that's the final word on that topic because mm. a scientist found it, mm. kind of thing. Um, science is, uh, yeah, gosh, it's—it's it's a huge debate and lots of people are having it but um, some people feel very negatively towards science being a mechanism of of destroying mysticism destroying spirituality destroying um, taking away value and purpose by clarifying what those sort of blurry edges that we might have associations of feelings or meanings or Mm. um, you know questioning the existence of God or questioning life after death those sorts of things but for a lot of us it's there's this incredible joy in understanding more about who you are, how you work, the incredible unlikeliness that humans ever evolved to be what we are. And there's an enormous amount of fear that comes with re- the re- revelations of the impact we're having with the lives that we're leading. Mm. But ignoring it is not going to go, make it go. Away. <laughs> <It's going. Yeah. laughs>
0: Learning scientific facts you know things that have been discovered and reasoned about the universe it it does give you that sense of awe Mm. um but i would also agree that science is is limited Mm. in the sense that provides lots of knowledge arguably Mm. a life devoted to acquiring knowledge and understanding our surroundings better is a life pretty well lived if we're talking about purposes that's not a bad purpose for existence it might be a fairly defining purpose of of being a human Mm. um But science seems as if it can't do everything for Mm, us. For example, mm. on on a day-to-day basis, Mm. I'm not referring to my scientific knowledge to make choices about the things that I do that day. You know, Mm. the kind of people that I spend time with or the life decisions that I make Mm. seems to be an arena that science it's it's just not the arena of science.
1: Some areas would probably give it a red hot go <laughs> irrespective of what the decision was. Yeah. I mean, do, do
0: you think in that way do do you do you, do you refer do you, do you sort of rely on your scientific knowledge to help you live in, in in a broad way or is it quite confined to the jobs that you're doing?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Uh I th- and it's it's more of an ongoing journey, isn't it? I think um I am always interested in what science might have to say about the way I'm behaving. Um, mm-hmm. I love, I love, love, love behavioural science and, and cognitive science and the science around biochemistry. Uh, and um, <laughs> I'm going to take the conversation in as interesting <laughs> gen- <laughs> So science is essentially knowledge and tracking trends and, and um, discovering what is observable ultimately at the, at the core of it mm. um and we've seen you mentioned smartphones before we've seen the rise of the quantified self the the movement where you can start tracking moods you can start tracking mm. heart rates you can start tracking blood pressure you can start developing ongoing data sets using scientific methods about your own self mm. sleeping patterns all the rest um <clears throat> and and then it gives it's up to you what you do with that information um and some people love this and some people hate this Mm. um for me I have a period tracking app (laughs) Uh great I was like do I talk about this yeah "Yeah, bring it (laughs) up um yeah but the period tracking app allows you just to sort of plot in how you're feeling on a day-to-day basis where you're at and uh like and it you start to understand what's going to happen like anticipate what's going to happen with your body and there's a day 26 in the mm-hmm. month where i will wake up and at some point that day be like it's it's all rubbish it's <laughs> terrible that person's horrible i'm yeah. going to end yeah. that friendship i'm going to call and quit that job yeah. i'm going to and then you track you look at the app and you're like Oh, I see. This is my PMS state. Yeah. Let's hold off making major life decisions until tomorrow. <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. So that has a real consequence. Massive. Zone. Massive. I
1: would. Oh, the damage I could do in my life if I didn't have that that piece of data. Yep. Yeah. So in that aspect, we we've all got this perception that we have this pure capacity to interpret the world that our feelings are rational, that our thought processes are entirely within our control, but we're just giant chemistry sets.
2: Mm. Um, Mm.
1: And if we have a little bit of data around that, it can really help you maybe not
2: to do (laughs) so much (laughs) next year in life. (laughs) But you can can put things in perspective, that's for sure. Exactly. Yeah, but it's really interesting that you say like there is this idea that we are capable of – Pure, sort of objective mm. relating yes. to other people, to the world. Mm. And um, that kind of experience for women of that cycle mm. um, really challenges that idea because mm. the same set of circumstances that might have been yeah. not just tolerable but enjoyable mm. a week ago mm. becomes something that is like intolerable, frustrating, yeah. and, um, you know, seems completely compelling that you, you should like change something yeah and so it's it's interesting that um because of that mm. hormonal cycle women are walking around engaging with the world i can't generalize yeah. to all women but i know myself and anecdotally yeah other women i speak with yeah that there is this understanding that um the way that you're relating and and mm. the information the data the stimuli that you're getting is is going to be mm processed in different ways.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's it's literally everyone. There's a thousand things impacting all of our hormone levels, right. literally everybody, not just, just women. Yep. I like that one because it's a very tangible one that you can almost time to a clock. Uh-huh. Um, but I think understanding that single example just feeds into understanding that all of us are just a balance of, of hormones and chemicals at any given moment. And right. I mean, mental health is a really fascinating one. You're sort of talking about that bias we have of being rational, objective, yeah. free will agents. It takes such like, – but it's so easy for any of those systems that are making us feel things or think things to get out of can out of mm. whack. And we've had hundreds of years of trying to uh, – well, stigma around mental health. But mm-hmm. understanding that it might be a single hormone or a single chemical can, mm. uh, that – will completely change your behaviour and completely change your perception. Hopefully will destigmatize mental health and sort of improve lives for people more generally. Yeah.
0: I mean, it shows how contingent and fragile our whole system of understanding and interpreting the yeah. world is. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it's similar, I think, to how your perceptions and, and judgments might be different when you're sort of at a certain point of the, the mental cycle. Mm. You know, if I haven't had a good meal,
1: <laughs> I, I, you know, I've
0: been known to oh, sabotage yeah. really good friendships.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, <clears throat> there was... and,
0: uh, who, but who's to say that, that when you're in that state, you're not perceiving more clearly
2: and objectively? <laughs> is, <laughs> is this that, the real world? My, I should end all my <laughs> friendships. A bad friendship.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Someone's Someone did a study. Study a couple of years ago tracking uh, the cycle of a day of a judge uh, and blood sugar levels. So directly straight after lunch, the 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 judge actually went more easy on people, and the further away from his last meal he got, the more likely people were to be sentenced. Oh my gosh! And. We rely wow. on these systems, like we've built all of these systems saying they're objective, saying they're rational, mm-hmm. trying to put these like very firm benchmarks, but it's all subjective. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and we're all just biological organisms. <laughs> does, does that
0: ever make you feel alienated or... or- weird or kind of you know existentially worried that, that <laughs> we are just this this mass of cells and experiences that I think self-doubt is
1: very healthy and knowing that we're fragile and that we're so so easy manipulated by our environment and our our own biology um <clears throat> can mean that it can make you. I mean, it, it depends what you do with that information, but it can make mm. you more collaborative. Like maybe I need, like there's two hours at the moment of every day where I I'm staring at a page with my comedy show going, I can't believe I've done this. I cannot believe I have encouraged people to go out of their way to sit in a darkened room for an hour to listen to this piece of twaddle.
0: (laughs) 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 At the same time, great show.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Please please come see my piece of twaddle. Um, Self-promotion
2: is my strong point. (laughs) I think anyone who's made something or like you hear this from like everyone who like puts something out there Mm. of their own creation, is this huge level of kind of like, this is not good enough. Yeah. But there's a lot of conditions. There's a lot of conditional uh, influence on that. Like, what do you say is good enough? If you grow up seeing this kind of comedy or these kind of people doing comedy and then Mm. you're like, I'm going to put this out there. It's science comedy or whatever. That's it. And
1: it encourages you to get external input. And I've just been thinking a lot lately about art as a conversation Mm. and we like to we celebrate artists as individuals who go into a room and create this thing by themselves and come out with this perfect isolated unique little piece of of value Mm. or art Mm -hmm. Um, and it just isn't that every piece of art is part of a conversation you're responding to other arts and the influence that other arts have had there's not a single book that has been written that multiple people didn't help write and collaborate and contribute and edit mm-hmm. and stimulate and inspire in some way mm. um so i think i'm just and you only know comedy is like the test of comedy is you don't know if something's funny until you stand on a stage and you say it in front of people and they mm. tell you very quickly yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. so it's like it's a collaborative thing from day one
2: yeah which takes a lot of the pressure off being some uh, being someone that creates something because you're not like this is personally linked to me and who Mm. I am Mm -hmm. and it's like expression of my you know soul purpose and everything it's part of this conversation that people are having
1: it's a patchwork yeah it's a response of a call and response and
2: yeah Mm. and
1: it means for you as an artist you put the focus back on the process and go my job is to share and to get feedback and to keep reiterating uh, to iterating on this until until it becomes something that I'm mm. I'm happy with mm. um I interviewed Frank Woodley a few years ago and he says he writes a show he does 12 pr- like trial preview shows by the end maybe 30 or 40% of the original show goes into mm. the final show it's like Artists wow. are often like the best artists are often just the hardest workers. Mm-hmm, yeah, people who just dedicate themselves to that iteration process and really listen to their audiences. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's
0: important just to get something down on the yeah. paper, and mm. then and then you can start judging it and editing it. Yeah, which part of that process do you get most satisfaction from?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I'm I'm not very good at writing comedy again please come and see my show <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's <laughs> there's a lot of comedy theory and there's a lot of <clears throat> sort of manuals about how you write a joke you're like take this bit take this bit bang it together in this particular way and get a punch line out the other end i can't do it and yeah. i've read those manuals um tim ferguson's got a great book called the cheeky monkey that gives you a lot of it and you know if you're if you're sitting in a in a in a, editor's, in a writer's room and you've got six hours to get a sketch out but at the end of the day, you need those tools. I'm more of a, like, a. will be cycling somewhere mm. and a stupid thought will pop into my head mm. and I'll giggle and I'll write that down. That's, like,
0: that's pure inspiration. Yeah. That's great. It's mm. nice. Yeah.
1: It's it's not, uh, yeah, when you've got a deadline. <laughs> <because> <laughs> <you're> like, <laughs> Just going on a lot k- of bike rides. <laughs> yeah, so many bike rides into the forest. Never to come back. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love that moment. When the punchline occurs to you, and there's this feeling in your stomach that tells you that's funny, Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And some most of the time, other people will find that funny. Sometimes they'll be like, "What were you smoking?" (laughs) (laughs) But that's well. I suppose if
0: you find it funny, you find it genuinely funny. Then the chances are someone else. Probably well, yeah. yeah. And ultimately, do you really want to be doing comedy that you don't find funny? So,
2: but other people yeah. do, like, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think when when I see someone who finds something genuinely funny, like, just sometimes, just someone else enjoying something mm. is funny and yeah. fun to be around. Totally. Yeah. Even if I'm like, I don't know why that's funny <laughs> to them, but yeah. I love that they're just <laughs> finding that really amusing. Yeah. And sometimes, yeah. if you
0: see somebody else laughing at something that they clearly find funny and you don't get immediately, you know that there's some funniness in the room that perhaps you haven't tagged on to and you can go looking for it and and if you're open you can find it and that's great yeah
1: that's it and there's no there's no thing on earth that literally every person will find funny what you find funny is this like conglomeration of your entire lived experience that will shape that and I I think comedy is often the final frontier like I I lived in Uganda for two years I learned a fair bit of Lusoga Um, I'd be around my Ugandan uh, colleagues and friends, and they'd crack a joke, and they would be on the ground <laughs> in tears. This joke was so funny, and I was like, I understand all the words, like I get the concept, but I don't know why that's funny. It just no, and you know, that's because I'm not not again, and I haven't lived there my whole life. Like it, it's feeding from some invisible context that they all get. I
2: I was not part of that. Amazing. <laughs> so it's really culturally conditions of what is actually funny. Yeah. In this instance. Totally. Yeah. And I
1: think as a comedian your job is to negotiate, do you make something that's going to be accessible Mm. to a lot of people, or do you go after your audience and make something that might be funnier but less people will be Mm right out of it. Yeah. And
0: was it was it natural for you to choose science as the kind of topics that you would be talking about in your comedy?
1: That's a good question. Um uh, I'm yeah, I'm just definitely fascinated. I think you just write comedy about whatever you feel what interests you and you're passionate about and you think's important. And I think the constant the <coughs> constant negotiation of a life between your impulses and your instincts and, and knowing that we uh, <laughs> science has reasons and explanations for why you're doing what you're doing. Is almost a tragic comedy in itself. Mm. That's sort of quite meta. Yeah,
0: yeah, you could talk doing comedy about the science of comedy. Yeah, that that would. Twists some melons <laughs> in a very serious
1: way. I, like I mean, that. my last show was about travelling. I spent my 20s working and travelling around developing countries, teaching people how to avoid parasites, and the show was about the eight parasites are contracted <laughs> in that period of time. <laughs> so we're imperfect beings, you know. Yeah. Science gives us this manual of perfection of what
2: we should be doing, and but we're, we're human. <laughs> right. Um, the, I'm curious about uh, how you first started doing comedy, did you do it in Melbourne? And did was there a moment where just like, I'm going to do this? Because <laughs> it's um, – when I see people on stage doing stand-up, I think like I – Are you insane? And, well, it's, um, it's hard to start because, like you say, you don't know if something's funny until you stand up and – offer it Mm. and then in doing that like did you find that there were welcoming spaces for you to experiment with that as an as a someone new to it when you were new yeah Yeah. oh
1: gosh uh I've loved comedy my entire life Mm. um but moving to Melbourne the first thing I did when I found out I was moving to Melbourne was check the dates of the Melbourne International Comedy Festival (laughs) um but for the first few years of living here I, I started reviewing comedy and I wrote about 300 reviews. Went to Edinburgh, reviewed ah. Adelaide Fringe. Um, was doing like going to about 50 to 60 shows
2: a festival. Whoa! Just absolutely immersing myself as a kind of a personal project or for publication with a particular. Um, um, with the more? reviews
1: were just my way of getting free tickets to feed my comedy right. addiction.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea and I would love to steal that. Yes. Um, so did you publish them like online or something like that? Yeah, or? yeah. I, with Broadway Baby and Heckler. Uh, just whoever okay. would take
1: me on So and, right. and give me access to as much comedy as I could possibly see.
2: Brilliant.
0: Were you scheming the whole while? That, no. Uh, no. To do it? No, it's, it's
1: funny. A few friends are like, oh, I knew you'd become a comedian. Okay. I was wow. like, I didn't. Oh. <laughs> um, uh, I just, I've always, I think I... Just wrote jokes and then there was a big pile of jokes and one day on my to-do list and I'm very good doing what's on my to-do list generally. I'd wrote do a five-minute set and the first time I, I absolutely terrified. Can't think of anything scarier to yeah. do but that's also why you do it. Um, I was going to this comedy club. I was going to do my first five-minute set and I, I parked my bike and I walked towards the door and I walked straight past it and up the end of the street and got an ice cream and sat and cried on a chair.
2: No. I can absolutely imagine myself doing that.
1: Oh, God. The, the first place I actually succeeded in doing my first full five-minute set was... Um, first place you made it yeah. <laughs> Got to the car park, didn't work. Next time, made it to the door frame. <laughs> <laughs> um there's a room called uh hashtag yes All women and cool uh it's really scary it's a mm. scary world and you know the saying you can't be what you can't see um mm-hmm. comedy is p- p- mm-hmm. mostly male dominated and mm-hmm. it, it, it is changing and that's so exciting mm-hmm. but that is genuinely actually the first place I felt safe and welcome enough to get through my first five minute set um brilliant yeah, which is always that like we can be objective and rational like you are mm-hmm. just as capable of this as everybody else mm-hmm. but it's so scary doing comedy anyway and doing it when in a room when there's a 12 12 person lineup mm-hmm. 11 of them are men and the last guy on stage just did some like shady rape jokes mm-hmm. and, and people in the room laughed and you're like that's mm-hmm. not a welcoming place to get up and, and do your jokes about caterpillars and bees <laughs> don't
2: really feel like you're in the right place. Yep. There's yeah. There's absolutely like there's there's many layers to it. Not having role models, yeah. not being able to look on stage and see women doing comedy about a diverse range of yeah. interests yeah. and then especially like the kind of open mic scene can attract people who may not be critically analyzing yeah. their approach <laughs> and <laughs> the way that they're speaking and talking and yeah. there's a real tendency to underestimate how isolating or intimidating it feels oh, to have jokes at the expense of women yeah in a room where you are then about to go up and yeah. like and if yep. you're the
1: if you're the only woman on the lineup, you then become representative of your entire gender, which
2: is no pressure. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> and there's amazing female comedians out there, and there's terrible female comedians because women are people yeah. <laughs> that <them laughs> have diverse abilities. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just like everybody else. Yeah. But you still
0: did it. You, you were still driven to do the comedy.
1: Yeah. Um. Yeah. Was it's, it was
0: it just the challenge, the fear to break through?
1: It's. If you're on a stage and a room full of people laugh, it's one of the most beautiful and amazing feelings you will ever experience. Mm. <laughs> deeply, always looking really wistful <laughs> and <she's> nice. Yeah. <laughs> it is. <laughs> you feel like you've given something to, to people, and there's a joy, and it's it's really special, and mm. only lasts for a couple of seconds, and it's it's <laughs> rare. And um, uh, quite a few comedians talk about comedy being addictive, and I I thought when uh, when I started that it was because of the highs, but mm-hmm. it's often the lows. Like you can never fully predict what's going to happen in a room. Mm-hmm. You never know who's in the audience. You never know what they just saw. You don't know how you're going to perform. Even what happened that week and the news affects the room's vibe and everything else. Um, and when it goes badly, you just get this desire to get on stage and fix it and <laughs> to yeah. do it again. <laughs> and if you've had that, those few seconds of joy when a room has just involuntarily lost it. You'll Mm. you'll remember that for the rest of your life.
0: Yeah, you've created something really special and different to everything else that goes on in the world, this kind of amazing dynamic between you and this room where you're all sharing the same space,
1: the same same Energy and understanding. Uh, It's really special and it's super temporary as well and you can definitely stare into the long, long dark tunnel of existentialism wondering what the heck you're doing and and does or why this matter. But Mm. ultimately, Mm. the
2: things that make life worth living are intangible and... Mm. And perhaps the temporary. things that yeah, and the things that matter, the things that matter, in, in a sense. I oh, know that doesn't make like, say yeah, yeah, anything, yeah, 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 yeah. but um, the things that we decide matter do mm. matter to us because we've decided that they're important. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: And everything's temporary. Literally, everything is temporary. So, well, yeah, <laughs> a few seconds of laughter is just as yeah, on the broader scale of things, mm. it's not a bad way to fill time.
2: Yeah, that's quite works. a quite a Buddhist concept that everything is temporary. Is it one that you encounter in the scientific world as well? Like, yeah, it's yeah. M- it's
1: my motto. So, mm. this too shall pass. Mm. Um, yeah, it's that's the I think the big thing that divides people. Some people s- say science takes away uh, the meaningfulness of life by questioning an afterlife by questioning there being any form of greater purpose and questioning there being a god those sorts of things um but other people like for me it's the exact opposite knowing how rare and special and temporary our existences are is almost what gives it and how unlikely that any
2: of us were born mm. gives it that specialness and this meaning mm yeah i've that's been my impression of like some aspects of science is this curiosity to encounter the observable world with an open mind, Um, which does, I think, potentially open a person up to the mystery of things. Because Mm. it seems to me like what we think we know from science is always changing and evolving itself, Um, which can either be an indication of um, doubt or confusion Mm. or it can be an indication Mm. of like remaining open-minded to having new interpretations of what we can observe yeah yeah yeah, yeah.
1: absolutely <laughs>
2: <laughs> we got deep I, that's I think, the idea yeah um, <laughs> I, th- I think
0: i have alternated between finding that quite depressive and quite uplifting mm. on, on different You know, ah, yeah. sometimes i will see it as this wonderful incredible natural miracle that that life came from nothingness and you know you've got consciousness this kind of you know technicolor phenomenal thing that we don't understand Mm. and conversely everything's just contingent and cause and effect and is meaningless I've sort of been in in each of those territories Mm -hmm. and I guess a lot of people can't tolerate the idea that there is just you know that there is just the kind of objective material facts yeah and they will uh, be more drawn to different interpretations of, of the world yeah. um, I mean yeah. do, do you do you have any any sort of spiritual or, or religious beliefs at all
1: Ooh, Uh so yeah I, I'm an atheist um, and I've had friends sort of be like, well, how do you, where, where's the meaning come from that? And I, I think I it made the sort of call uh, when I was 14. I grew up in the Blue Mountains, which is near um, Sydney and it's just a stunning part of the world. Um, and sort of uh, definitely I, I prayed hard. I did all the good things as a kid because we had, we had scripture at my school. Um, oh, yeah. One of our scripture teachers sort of spent a lot of the class screaming that he was not... Um, not, uh, what was the word, evolved from a monkey and that was ridiculous and how dare oh we debase um, humanity by mm. suggesting we had animalistic roots and that actually did more to <laughs> uh, entrench my atheism. <laughs> else. Um, I think the, the defining moment, I was about 14 and I just climbed to the top of this cliff and just looking across the mountains, this incredible expanse of, of trees and nature and that sense of how deeply insignificant I was. Mm. And realising how deeply dependent I was on those trees and this environment for my own survival, um, was sort of the moment I came to uh, <laughs> the realisation that, well, becoming an atheist. And um, if if I was, I don't talk in spiritual terms much, but the sort of philosophy that of Gaia, of, of life and mm. the Earth being a single organism, and all of us being interdependent and entirely. Yeah, needing everything around us is deeply humbling and extremely beautiful for mm-hmm. me, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't want to go into a space where I'm criticising Christianity, but the idea that humans rise above everything else and everything else on earth is in subservience to humanity has been a big challenge from a, from an environmental and a sustainability aspect. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, there's a thousand different ways to interpret Christianity. and I know a lot of Christians who who find a lot of... Um, motivation for environmentalism in their in their belief. They're very yep. malleable, I guess, yeah. in that capacity. That's sort of where I'm coming from.
2: Yeah, because there is a lot of um, unquestioned social assumptions about humans and how humans interact with animals and with, well, with other animals, mm. non-human animals, and with nature and the p- ecosystem and things like that. Mm. And a lot of those assumptions, even for people who wouldn't ascribe themselves as Christian, have been influenced by a christian mm. yeah. philosophy christian thinking yeah. in that sense of like we are the caretakers mm. and but by that we mean we have control over mm. these domains yeah. yeah yeah
0: and i think there are lots of other ideologies religious or or not that feed into that cultural belief yeah. system that that we are special yeah. um, and we're, we're above every mm. other kind of life form or yeah. organism. And, you know, even as individuals, mm. we, we sort of believe that we're special and, and perhaps mm. are better
2: than yeah. other people, you know, yeah. stronger,
0: um, faster, yeah. faster
2: better, <laughs> funnier, but not, not necessarily referring to myself no. not <laughs> I mean, Necessarily. I- <laughs> like you might be, but <laughs> just, I'm not going to roll it out. Yeah, <laughs> um,
0: um, yeah actually... I, I was saying that sometimes, I, you know, it's easy to to feel a bit down about being living in this sort of cold, meaningless universe. But mm. I, but actually, the idea of of feeling like you're connected to this big organic yeah. system and feeling humbled by that that does sound appealing. Mm. And that's that's yeah. nice.
1: Yeah, and it's I think it, you can go either way. I mean, some people feel that sci- science strips away meaning, um, but the idea for me. Uh, they, it's called positive nihilism, basically that there is no manuscript about how your life's going to play out. There is no determinism. Your your life lived experience uh, hasn't been re- pre-written by by a higher higher power. That the lives we're given, we are able and we're we're the ones who are able to make meaning out of that, and we get to determine what we do. That and you know, for me, the the goal is to increase joy and decrease pain mm-hmm. <laughs> within my immediate. Um, reach of influence that's really powerful
2: and empowering to me, and
1: I can I can see how you can go either way on that. But mm. That's my take on it.
2: Where do you find like practical tools to um, increase joy and decrease pain? Oh. <laughs> Have A bit of a sit in the sun. Yeah. Nice. Go to the beach. Yeah, yeah I like that. Watch some comedy. Comedy.
1: Do I guess the whole try decrease. Uh, the actions within your your capacity um, that might be causing harm mm. to, to others mm-hmm. um, and I'm a thoroughly imperfect specimen like most of us I have an iPhone in my bag and mm-hmm. I have a disposable coffee cup on the on the bench here <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but the more you can mold your behaviors to reduce negative impacts on others and we just don't have the excuses that we might have had 20 or 30 years ago, like we can, we can watch a documentary about the conditions of the factories where we're buying our cheap mm. clothes. We, can, we know how much plastic's in the oceans. We, mm. we know what food choices we're making are going uh, like, to yeah impact populations that we can't immediately see. We, we mm. don't live in the bubble that we had, had um, mm. the advantage of being in 20, 30 years ago. Mm. Uh, which again, very fucking depressing. <laughs> <laughs> but
0: we are now blessed with that kind of consciousness and, and yeah. the awareness that hopefully allows us to make informed decisions. Yeah, exactly. In theory.
1: Yeah, and those sort of old notions of tribalism, of, of national identity—they're all melting away, and mm. more capacity to empathise with people from on the other side of the world. Absolutely.
2: We're out of time. I feel like there's so much more we could talk about. Yeah. But it's been really interesting chatting with you and really fun. So thank you. Thanks, guys. It's
0: been uh, maximally pleasurable. uh, (laughs) Minimum (laughs)
2: pain. (laughs) Minimum
1: pain, Yeah. (laughs) yeah. Thanks for having me.
0: You've been listening to Dialogues on 3CR Community Radio 855 AM.
2: You can download the podcast by searching for Dialogues on your podcast app.
0: And email us on dialogues3cr at gmail.com
2: or find us on Facebook. Just search Dialogues 3CR.